Hello and welcome to the VIP pod. I'm Emma, one of your hosts. In this series, we meet a range of people who are visually impaired. We're hoping to raise awareness of people who've got many different sight conditions, all whilst having a great conversation and having a bit of a laugh too. Hi there, this is Rupert from the VIP pod team. Just to let you know that this episode contains some strong language and some discussions around suicide. As with all our interviews in this series, it was recorded online remotely, so the sound quality may vary. Hello and welcome to the VIP pod. My name's Emma Martins. And my name's Michael Werdingham. Who are you talking to today, Emma? Today we are talking to the lovely Darren Marino, who, oh my goodness, he has been through so much. I mean, from from growing up in care and being in prison. He has such an incredible story in it. At the end, he's kind of, he turns his life around, doesn't he? I mean, It's a fantastically interesting story. He kept us gripped as he was turning it from his early life to his troubles with the law and then forming his charity and, and helping other people. Yeah, I hope you enjoy the podcast. this strange time at the moment we're all sort of stuck in lockdown yeah i, I would get it right I, i've experienced lockdown before you know <laughs> going to prison if that was me in the care system so w- when yeah. we sort of started this I, I sort of decided this was lockdown with luxury yeah, um, yeah. i think i mean it's affected us all but actually what, what i've noticed is this time is i've got a different set of people around me and i, I did in my previous lockdown kind of say and yeah. i also have new responsibilities which i didn't have before so you know i employ a, a number of staff in, in the organization i lead also we you know also support 30 40 volunteers keeping keeping my mind and, and keeping my energy to support them through lockdown yeah. has, has been tough your visual impairment is that has that always affected you throughout your life i was born um, with me visual impairment the story as it when my mother was um, pregnant and, and uh, she was carrying me that she had german measles just around her eyes on her face this is the story i've had passed down to me and then I, yeah. I was born with cataracts. It's always affected me. It really has. To be fair, you know, it's only been in recent years when technology's improved, I've sort of been able to sort of improve in certain aspects of my life myself. Doing this sort of stuff mm. online and, and stuff, you know, I wouldn't, I've really benefited from this way of working as such. I also have dyslexia and I really struggle to put pen to paper. It just doesn't work. It doesn't compute, you know. But with, you know, voice recognition and, and having readers on, on the iPads and computers, it just opened, opened a complete new world up for me. So I've embraced mm. sort of technology over the, over the last few years, and, it, and it's helped me to, to get involved and, and, and do a lot more things. How did you cope being um, partially sighted when you were younger? Always had them names of being four eyes, specky four eyes and stuff like that whilst mm. growing up. What I can actually see or can't see, so the easiest way to explain it is, is obviously I, I wear glasses, but I've also got contact lenses in as well. Never had contact lenses when I was growing up. Um, it was always what people would call the jam jar uh, national glasses, where the lenses were that thick and the frames were that thick. I've actually got an indent in my nose over the years when I was young wearing them um, because they were that heavy on the face. So if you go to the opticians, you've got the old-fashioned letterboard. With all, with all my glasses and everything on, I can see the top letter. If you take them off, I can't see any of that board. So my eyesight is quite, you know, 
quite poor and quite effective, and especially growing up. Childhood was a, a bit of a strange one, really. I can't really remember much before the age of six. And that is, I don't know if that's because I, I sort of blocked things out, because at that age is when I was sort of taken and put into what was defined back in them as a, as a special school, in fact. And really, I, I can't remember before that. In, so often when, when I go around and I do quite a lot of um, talks and speaking in schools and all different events, mm. the sort of the instant thing I can remember is, is the social worker coming to collect me on the day I was first going to that school. I mean, the memories of that vivid, um, it's like watching a film. And this is the crazy thing. I can't remember, I remember things in my life, but I even remember that day, whatever it was like, what the colour of the car was like. And this is all from the age of six and seven, what the colour of the car was like. I even remember the, the social worker's name. I remember the smells in the car. I remember what music was playing on that first journey to that school. And, and, and their memories are still really vivid. And actually trying to remember some stuff before then is, is all lazy, it's all blurred, and, and I actually can't. And, and it's really difficult to remember some positives sometimes in my childhood because it had been away from home for quite a long time. You know, at first, my mum said it was for a short length of time, but that time yeah. happened to be 11, 11 years, you know. Mm. Um, yes, I, I would come home at half term or terms, but after a number, number of years, I actually didn't want to come home, yeah? And I'm not saying that... That was, you know, this, that school was, was a bad school. We did get involved in lots of different stuff I would have never been involved in or had a go at in a normal school, but also took a lot away from me. And that, and that what was taken away was, was the family connection, was that family tie. E you know, even to this day, 30-odd years later, that uh, me and my mother don't really have that much of a positive relationship. Yeah. I was there for 11 years, um, mm. left, left down as, as 17. No sort of real qualifications or no real knowledge or skills how to fit into what I would call a mainstream society or world. It, it was difficult. It was a school mainly of visually impaired or blind people, but also um, other disabled people as well at the school. Mm. And it was all, uh, I think there was about three, 350, 300 pupils there. It was um, a boarding school, but also had day pupils as well, as well from sort of the local area. Yes, I did make a couple of friends through that journey. I, I had one friend who, who, who was a real good friend and we were there for a similar length for a time. But when I left, I sort of left with no friends or we never connected again for a very long time. But that's another story I'll, I'll talk about. <laughs> We have just recently connected about a month ago. Oh, wow. um, yeah, amazing. And which is quite interesting. But a lot of the school was very sport orientated, to be fair, mm. and which I found well. I was never academically really any good, even though the school was quite academically good. Um, a lot There was lots of people who really did thrive in that environment. It was funny because even though it was only in later life, I actually found out that I had dyslexia. Actually, going through that school, I was a bit stupid and naughty sometimes because I couldn't put pen to paper and I couldn't write like some of the other children or I couldn't read like some of the other children. Mm. But, you know, back in them days, we didn't have sort of dyslexia tests or mm. the tests you did have was all around how to test with dyslexia. It was all around in your eyesight. But if you've got partially sightedness, you couldn't get a proper dyslexia sort of uh, test, apparently. So it was only much later on in life that, that I realised that I had that as well. I was always in the sort of, what you would say is that this is the bottom class, shall we say, but I was always quite good at sport. Mm -hmm. I played football and a bit of running and, and I loved swimming. And, you know, school did a lot of horse riding with the RDA and, and, and people like that. 
and mm -hmm. uh, that, them things were good. But it was just that being away from, from, from my family and, and not really knowing my own brothers or sisters or my other family members. And I remember for the first four years in, in going to the school and, and getting dropped off by the social worker, you know, I would just cry to sleep most nights. And it was only after the sort of that four year sort of first period then I started where I started to become institutionalized and actually mm. really didn't want to come home anymore. Didn't want mm. didn't want to be with my brother or sister, didn't mm. want to be with my mum. We sort of came from a broken home anyway. We didn't have a didn't have a father figure around when I was young. So when I did actually come home, them times I did come home, I very much went to my grandparents, my granddad's home, actually, and not even spent much time with my mum at all. We just didn't jowl, and it was and it was wrong. I think over the years we've not really spoken about it, but I think she felt a bit guilty that in herself that I actually went there. But mm. she didn't have a choice, you know. Mm. For many years, I thought she sent me there, you know. For many years, I actually blamed her. But only, mm. you know, realising as I've got older and, uh, and stuff that actually, you know, looking back to it, she did not have a choice. That's how it worked back then, in, in the late 70s and such. What happened next for you then in your life? I left school at 17, like I said, with sort of no qualifications as such. I had a, a couple of bits of paper, which I don't even know what they meant at the time. So suddenly I had all this support around me. Oh, I was in this protective bubble for 11 years, and mm. suddenly I was... In the big wide world, people's attitudes towards some people who may have disabilities weren't probably the best, you know, mm. uh, or the support, well, there wasn't any support out there. So I would struggle to, to, to even find a job or when I, I found a job with disabilities, the eyesight let me down and, and, mm. and it couldn't function. There was no, you know, no support, no technology like we've got today to, mm. to do that. To be fair with you, it's time. My mental health was re really getting really quite poor. Why, why is this happening? Well, why do people, you know, keep calling me these names? Why do we get getting called hopeless or thick or stupid or four eyes or blind? Or, and all these horrible labels just keep, kept adding to me. And actually, my head was just spiraling out of control. And I felt worthless, to be honest with you. I felt like, what's the point anymore? I did think, you know, a number of times in my life, I had thoughts about taking, taking my own life. But I found alcohol. I found drugs. And for the next 10, 20 odd years, that became my life, was basically mm. drinking and taking drugs on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, I'm not going to say I didn't, you know, I enjoyed that. And I honestly did. And I... And but uh, I didn't know why I was doing that until later on in life, and to, to learn about you know childhood traumas and stuff like that. And I'm not going to make any excuses about some of the things I've done in my life by doing mm. and, and getting involved in it and going into addiction and stuff like that. You know, them early experiences as a child, some of them traumas I faced certainly played a part in why I was making certain choices in my life. My life spiraled out of control for many years. You know, after time, people didn't want to give you things for free or drugs for free. So unfortunately, I got involved in crime and to pay for some of them habits and pay for some of them addictions. And, yeah, very low-level crime at, at the first, but you end up climbing the criminal ladder. After a number of years, I came quite involved in, you know, organised crime through that in, in, in drug trafficking and stuff like that, where I felt respected in certain ways that actually, you know, what, what's happened is that someone who's with a disability who's registered party side has suddenly made a career in the criminal world where you would think I would be super vulnerable in that world. I sort of made a reputation for myself and built a group of people around me where it seemed I was respected. Well, that's what it felt like at the time.
but actually it was all bullshit, you know? <laughs> actually, life a crime and, and thinking you're something you're not. And all the people around you, none of them are actually friends. Soon something would happen that they would be very quick enough to jump into your shoes as such and, and, and wouldn't think twice about you. And actually, so the family I thought I built around me, what I didn't have, was actually not real. Actually, more damaging than anything. The police were always going to catch up with me. You know, crime <laughs> does never pay. Let's get, that, <laughs> let's get that out there. Crime does not pay people, you know. The, the police were going to catch up with us. We're never going to be clever in the police, and, and my time came. And, you know, I, I look back on that, and I, I very often say to people, I'll say, you know, the time the judge gave me probably saved me. I was put into prison. How long were you in prison I, for? What, what were you in I prison sent, for? I was sentenced to prison for conspiring to supply Class A drug in Stoke-on-Trent and leading a organised crime unit and money laundering. So, four and a half years in prison. It would have been more if I didn't plead guilty all the way through. I knew I was mm. guilty. At the time, I was scared, don't get me wrong. I was worried. Mm. But I felt, and especially when I, I sort of first landed in there, the regime was very much, very similar to what I experienced as a young child. Told when to get off, told when you can go for a shower, told when you can eat, told when you need to mm. go to bed, and told when you can either have exercise. So it was very much similar. The biggest barrier was was everything in there was never designed for someone who had a visual impairment. Yeah. So, you know, from the moment you go in there, you become vulnerable because of your visual impairment. That any paperwork, even from ordering things off your canteen or phone cards or accessing phones or anything like that is a massive barrier for someone with a visual impairment. Trying to find the help in a, in a broken criminal justice system, you know, the prison system is, is, is quite broke, overrun with, with prisoners, and it's very much understaffed, and trying to find support for me, myself in there was immensely difficult. Even though I knew, actually, and I looked at prison as an opportunity, I thought to myself, actually, you know what? You can probably try and get yourself re-educated there's going to be a bit of help in there. But someone doesn't want you coming back in here, not when they're paying £45,000 a year for you to stay in there. You know, yeah. you would think you didn't want you going back. But actually, the reality was there was there was nothing. So basically, I found myself for the first six to 12 months of my prison sentence being locked up behind a door for 23 hours a day, not being able to access to education because there wasn't the people in there to support me with my needs, no access to, to sort of any books or any, any reading material or stuff. And, and that was difficult. And, yeah. and, and my head started going again then as well. And, and really, really found, found myself in some real quite dark places in my mind with depression and also during that time i was also going through a um, just before i went to prison i had a i had a young son who went to prison and he was six months old and we were going through also through that we were going through a relationship breakdown as well yet again i found me in myself in a place where i didn't want to be in in this world anymore i got i got moved around a lot in the prison system as well so it was quite difficult once you've got used to sort of one environment where everything is and you build that mental map up in your head so when i walk around places i, I build a mental map up so i know where barriers are i know where i need to go and suddenly within six months you've done that on a repeated occasion you then would get moved to to another prison and you would have to go all, through all that again then you would have to find someone else who could help you, who you found another prison to get about and help mm. to collect your food and, and so on. I, I made a couple of friends who, who would help me out, but trusting yeah. people, you know, it, it's difficult. 
You know, for example, you're allowed to order certain things off a canteen in prison once a week out of your prison wages if you had a prison job. Obviously, I was never given the prison job in my first few prisons because of my, my visual impairment. But so you would hand your canteen sheet over to another prisoner and they could take advantage and order things what they wanted themselves. They could see how much money you had in your prison account, for example. So you were putting your, yourself in other people's hands all the time. So it was difficult to find them people you could trust. And it was all, it was only till the sort of the last prison I went to, which is called a sort of a decap prison within the, the criminal justice system. So this is sort of classed as a, an open prison, but it wasn't that open to someone like myself because it was a, a couple a few hundred miles away from where I where I lived. I had no one in that local area who could, could actually come and pick me up and take me out of that prison for the day as such. So it was it was an open prison to a lot of people, but very close still to myself. Mm. Even, even though we were allowed to walk around the grounds, which is absolutely lovely. And they had a lovely education block there, which is a, which is quite an interesting story as well. So we were actually allowed to walk around this prison without guards around us. Wow, I looked okay. again at, let's try the education thing again, Darren. I would go to the education department every day and keep asking if they could help me. Kept going again every day. Kept going again. In fact, I became a nuisance and, and I nearly <laughs> got chipped out of the prison to becoming a nuisance for asking for help to be educated. And it was just one guy who noticed me. And he was a, a teacher in the education part in prison. He wasn't a prison officer. It was just one guy. He... He noticed me kept going up there, my persistence every day. Stuck his uh, leg out for me a little bit, shall we say. And he, he'd come over to me and said, Darren, I run various classes within the education block, mate. And I, I've noticed no one here has given you any support whatsoever. He wouldn't even get me a magnifying glass into the prison to help me read, yeah? Oh. Um, it was classed as, as a security risk in case I started a fire with a magnifying glass. So I, I, I wasn't allowed. Uh, oh, no, glass. that's awful. It's it, it, quite awful, yeah. So anyway, this oh. guy took note of me, and he says, I, I run various classes, and I do some um, cookery classes and stuff. I, I'm going to put you in one of my classes. It says they only run for six weeks, Darren, but it's going to get you out, out your room every day for six weeks. It's just basic cookery classes. It says, I will write all the recipes down for you in bed. Even, you know, I'll do that in my own time at home. Even if it won't enlarge me, I will do that, and I'll do that on my own. And, and, and the guy was named Dan. I remember his name very well. I don't remember anyone else's name, <laughs> but I remember this guy's name, yeah? And, 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 I, and I joined his classes. And I was always, I always liked food. If you saw the size on me, you'd probably tell. And I always quite enjoyed cooking. And he said I had a quite a good balance, which was quite, was really good. Not just in cooking, but actually supporting some of the other prisoners. Even though I visual impairment, I had a dyslexia, he noticed I had a lot of empathy for other prisoners, especially mm -hmm. some prisoners who are older than me or who, you know, thinking, but I, I was helping a lot. And he re recognised that in me even though at the time I probably wasn't recognising it in myself. I did, you know. What, what happened there after the six-week course, which I passed, obviously, uh, with flying colours, he decided then to create a special job. Never, we've never done this before in this prison. I'm going to create a special job for you, Darren. You are now my assistant, and you can work in this education block five days a week. You give me a set of keys. I'm prisoner with a set of keys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The store cupboard where they kept all the food and where they kept all the sharp knives. I was allowed these keys. Hey, wow. the, the, the trust someone actually put in me was absolutely incredible. And I yeah. think that was one of the tur real turning points in my life. That actually, okay. someone actually recognised that I had some skills and talent. Yeah. 
And so yeah. recognising all the bloody problems in my life, one person recognised I had something to give. And mm. so he gave me something back. I was going to keep hold of that trust he gave me with both hands and, and really do something with it. And it really went well. And for, for nearly nine months later after that, I, I was had a job five days a week in the education department in Cookie. I must have put on a three stones because we were mainly doing baking and cakes every day, which was great. <laughs> but this prison, you know, it was it was an high-risk decap prison. So uh, quite a number of prisoners who were in there who were going to there were on their sort of last two years. And some of them were a long-term serving prisoners, so quite old prisoners. And some of these guys have, have never even, you know, baked or made a pie or made a dish or uh, cooked or even brought shopping in their lives. We designed a sort of support package for them and, and doing basic cookery, basic baking, writing recipes for them so that they could do that and, you know, get back into family life when they were released from prison. Yeah. Which is incredible. And I really thrived in that. But then it was coming up to my sort of time of release, which then also in itself was a, a real big worrying moment especially when when you've been institutionalized as a young person and then you you become i was becoming institutionalized again mm. and i didn't and and then it was ah oh, i need to go now i need to then try and rebuild i need to to i'll be put somewhere else in life as such there was no way i really wanted and there was no way i was going back to a life of crime i was clean from drugs i was clean from alcohol Yes, I'm a bit few stones heavier because I've been eating all these cakes. I, I was healthy. I was in a good place. The real difficulties of actually being released from prison and having nowhere to live. So all that good work has been put in and this guy's helped me on and I'm feeling amazing. But then the reality is that actually in a few weeks' time, I could be sleeping on the street somewhere. Yeah, um, yeah. Even though when you go into prison, you're very much know and the support services know when you're coming out of prison so they they had a long time to help me to try and get somewhere and i, I remember being in prison 16 months before my release and filling loads and loads of forms out and then when i was released from prison i had to go to see my probation officer who i thought was going to um give me a house or a flat somewhere mm. and i asked him where am i going to live tonight what what's happened to them housing forms and then my housing forms were still on his desk 16 months after I sent them in, and they were never sent to any housing for a provider. You know, it was it was Christmas time, 2012. There was snow everywhere, and it was cold. And I found myself released from prison, hundreds of miles away from Stoke-on-Trent, and I had to try and get back here just to be told that tonight, Darren, you're sleeping on the streets. That was a, a massive, massive. It was like a a big kick in the teeth from the system. Yeah. That, yeah. that I, I, I have done everything which has been asked of me. You know, I've, I've rehabilitated. I didn't want to go back to crime. I didn't want to get involved in that. But now I'm here and the reality actually hits. Uh, no one gives, really gives a shit what you've just put in mm. for them last few years in there, mate. That's the reality is. You are at the bottom of the pile. You are deceived now at the bottom of the pile and you're sleeping on the street. Mm. And that's what happened. And it was only for, for a couple of local charities who, who, who helped me out a couple of weeks mm. later and found me some accommodation and put a, a bit of a roof over my head. You know, in that time, you know, yet again, I felt like I wanted to take my own life. I had no access to, to, to any public funds. Um, mm. I applied for benefits. There was a massive delay of 
I think it was 15 weeks I waited before I received any any benefits um, whatsoever. So in that time, I was building up debts because I, I was in a house that is shared accommodation, even though they were applying for, for money to pay for me to be there. There were service charges I would have had to pay. Mm -hmm. I had no means of putting gas and electric on. Fortunately, the people they, they put me in the property with were on different journeys to myself. So they were still heavy involved in addiction. There were still oh, drugs gosh. being taken in the house. And if the police would have ever come to that house, there was only one person who was going back to prison. That oh. was me, because I was on license for conspiracy mm -hmm. supply drugs. Because they were in that property I was staying, I was put in another vulnerable position. It was hard. And having no money, uh, you know, um, was really hard. And, and there was times I thought to myself, you know what? Do I get back involved in crime? I'm not to support any bloody playboy lifestyle or, or be somebody I wasn't. Just this time to actually clothe, be myself, keep myself warm. Yeah. But I, I struggled through. I was sort of surviving on food parcels from food banks. I was introduced, I had about loads of different support workers in my life through one mm. thing or the other. I, and I met this support worker and I'm still friends with her today. And it was the first support worker for many years who I was sort of connected with straight away. And yes, again, she really helped me to find my, my own flat. She helped me get that, accom uh, you know, that accommodation. She helped me to get furnished and stuff. But she also recognised, you know, I was in, wasn't in a good place. And one of the sort of moving things, emotional things, what she gave to me, she gave me a hug one day, which is a big no-no in, in the support work land. You know, you can't do that with a customer or a client. Mm. You cannot do that. But she gave me a hug. And you know what? I can't remember the last time I had a hug in my life. I really can't. I can't, I never, I can't remember ever having, mm. ever having a hug off my mother. Might have happened before before I got sent to that school. And it felt so good. It felt Aww. like that actually people do care, you know? It mm. felt like people do really give a shit. So mm. I, I thought, you know, I'm going to take that hug as a gift. I'm going to accept that hug as a gift. And actually, you know, I'm going to do something with my life. And that's when I started on a completely different journey to what I was on before. Wow. You've been through a lot, my goodness. A lot of it's my me own sort of doing, you know. I, I don't make bo no bones of it. That, you I know, don't know. I, I've, been, I've been places and done things which, you know, certainly not proud of in my life. Certainly not proud of. And... But I'm quite open and honest about them. I don't, I don't mm. look at them anymore as mistakes. I look at them as lessons in life. And if I can share some of them lessons where other people may not go down the path I go down, and that's all been worth it. All that trauma, all that nastiness has been worth it if one person mm. doesn't go down the path I went down in, mm. in life. Have you ever yeah. had to deal with sort of anxiety and like, you know, particularly by going to prison? To be honest with you, I think I've had anxiety the majority of my life. Sweats come on, the, the, the tight chest come on, on many occasions of my life. It's mm. only been in recent years that I actually have learned to, to sort of manage that. And actually, you know, I don't get anxious now. People actually say, actually, you're super confident, darling. In fact, you're amazingly confident, you know. I hold mm. national conferences with four or five hundred yeah. people each year and do stuff on TV and radio and lots mm. of different stuff. So I've sort of learned to manage them anxieties. And it's only been in the last six, five or six years I've, I've been able to do them and found certain techniques what, what work for me. When you're in prison, could you read then? Have you ever been able to read or are the dyslexia is too, too difficult? Yeah, so the, the dyslexia and, and, and the eyesight, I told you I couldn't uh, even get a magnifying glass in. But what amazing thing. I met another visually impaired 
person in my last prison. And he was in there on a life sentence, unfortunately. But he introduced me. He was very clever, a clever man. He knew the system, shall we say. <laughs> um, and there was a, there was a library um, in this last prison. And it was run by Gloucestershire County Council. He managed to help me to get, and he also had a daisy player, Nora and I be. Mm-hmm, and we managed yeah. to get daisy players into prison. And that completely opened a new world to me again. Okay. I've, I've never had a book. I've never been written, uh, read a book or anything before that time. Yeah. Before that time in prison. And he introduced me to this daisy player. And they would send me six books a month into prison. And I would post mm. them free out. And it was absolutely incredible. That really helped me a lot because I could access stuff or even didn't even know what existed before. What's been the most trickiest thing you've had to deal with? Wow, that's a massive question. Sorry. No, it's a good question. I've probably got massive loads of examples to be fair. Trying trying to put one at the the top is... uh, Yeah, what has been? I'll tell you what, meeting my new partner in life. Oh, right, um, yeah. And how we met is, is an even a, a more interesting story. I run and lead an organisation called Expert Citizens, and this is run by four people who've been affected by some of the biggest social injustices, I like to call them, homelessness, addiction, domestic violence and abuse. So my, my partner, unfortunately, was in a, in a previous relationship, was a was a victim of domestic abuse. She was put into a, a woman, a women's refuge in Stoke-on-Trent. And she was from the Neaton, that's near Coventry, right? So she was placed mm-hmm. up here, you know, 150 miles away from wherever. We met through the organisation I lead, and she came to volunteer for us one day. We sort of hit it off over, over a few months and, and got to know each other. What was incredible was, when I spoke about my experience of being in that boarding school for 11 years, Well, that boarding school was basically 15 minutes around the corner from where Joanne was born or where Joanne was living. So we were were 15 minutes away from each other for 11 years of our life, yeah? And it was only in the last six years we've met and, and you know, we've we've known this. So we we could have met each other all them years ago. But what Joanne's done for me, it's the family thing, which I've I've never, you know, we talked about some of the struggles I've had with, with my family. Joanne has provided me with that family. Joanne already had two children, and her mum and dad have all accepted me into their family. Last mm-hmm. year, Joanne's daughter had a son, who's uh-huh. now my grandson, so I'm a, I'm a grandfather. And I've been, of all the traumatic stuff and all the crazy stuff what's happened in my life, the last six years have been in Joanne and been accepted into somebody's family when I've, okay. I've not felt accepted in my own family sometimes. It's been, it's been absolutely massive. And when I, quite often I do lots of talks around um, language and labels and how many labels people get put on them in life. And actually, I reel all these labels off. It's like a supermarket list. And actually, then I, then I sort of finish the talk and say the most, you know, I've decided to relabel myself some things. But the most proudest label I've got is, is granddad. That's the, the real high point uh, of my life. So what would you say would be the best bit of advice you would give to someone who's losing their sight? You know what? You're losing your sight, but you, you, you're going to be gaining a new world. There's new adventures. I really, you know, find it difficult for someone who's going to be losing their sight. We talked about. I'm used to this, this world. 
we're in. Yeah. You know, we've bumped around it for, for quite a number of years. <laughs> and, and, and suddenly for someone to lose their sight and, and, and come into this world, we've bumped around it. It's going to be absolutely massive. And, and just look at it if you go into a new world, mm. a different place. Mm. You know, I'm not going to say to people, try not to worry about it too much because it is a worry. And I still worry about getting around in certain things and yeah. going in certain places myself. You're not on your own, you know. Mm. People, there is people out there who can help. There should be more, especially locally and, and nationally, you know, different charities and organisations mm. disappear over the last few years. You're not alone. And, and that's what I would yeah. say to someone. You are, you are not alone. There is, there is people like ourselves are here with, who would always be happy to have mm. a conversation or have a chat with anybody who, who may be going through that. What would you say is the best bit of advice for someone who's just coming out of prison? Because, I mean, that, like you said, was really, really, really hard for you. What would you say for someone else? It's difficult because we all go into prison for all different things so mm. giving one specific advice is, is you know may not work what helped me was was you know other people and, and being given opportunities the, the problem is and some of the struggles we have today mm. is there isn't many opportunities for people who get that ex-offender or that name put on them mm. and i've had to create my own opportunities you know i've started my own business as such for me is to stay strong yet again that the, there is people out there who can help you if you want yeah. to accept that help to me is you don't want to go back don't keep going back because there is better things than prison trust yeah. me it's not big it's not hard people don't respect you when you're in there as i was mentioned i was in supported accommodation with a housing provider and i was finding it difficult and i wasn't getting any benefits or so i was invited to a, a focus group yeah which i've been mm. on many in my life <laughs> and the only reason i really turned up because there was 20 quid voucher going <laughs> to be honest yeah. with and I had no money I needed some food yeah. and some pizza yeah. and I met this guy who I'm really good friends with still today in fact you know we, we do work together now in different ways and he was so full of energy and he was explaining about how you could use your lived experience and actually all them experiences you experienced are not for nothing they can be mm. used to create some sort of positive change. Mm. If that's positive change within yourself or within the systems or the services that, you know, we access, we can do that. It, all that stuff is not for now. And, and I really brought into it. One of the only times in my life I actually sat and listened to somebody who I never met before, but properly listened and, and took it all in. This was a, a development as a, as a part of a project that the National Lottery Community Fund were, were looking into. The, the, the value of lived experience of people who mm. were experiencing what they called, at the time, multiple and complex needs, which is mm. now referred to as multiple disadvantages. So that was people who were experiencing the systems of homelessness, mental ill health, addiction, the criminal justice system. And the lottery were going to make a massive investment around this piece of work. They recognised there was 12 areas of the country where people were most affected by these disadvantages. Stoke-on-Trent was recognised as one of them areas. The lottery didn't want just to chuck money into the system again and, and nothing ever changed. They wanted the voice of lived experience to drive it, to, to drive this sort of systems change stuff. So we, we were invited along to, to use our lived experience, but work within partnerships to develop a business plan and a bid for the National Lottery. This became the, the Fulfilling Lives programme. So this is the, we're talking at over £120 million investment in 12 areas of the UK over eight years. And we developed this bid um, with our partners in Stoke-on-Trent, and we were successful in receiving £10 million for our city mm. to support over 300 individuals over eight years who've experienced this stuff. 
And that's where the sort of experts by experience, expert citizens were sort of born. We were just a, a group of people who then became a voluntary group of people who then became a, a constituted group of volunteers who would work towards this. And over the first couple of years, we, we started developing different products. We would develop a, an evaluation built on a sort of appreciative inquiry sort of approach, and lot of consultancy and co-design, co-production, loads of different stuff we, we, we would do. And we found we had loads of different skills. We then got commissioned to become our own company and the contracts offered to us to support the partnership in Stoke-on-Trent. So, you know, for three or four years, all of us just been volunteers, some of us out of prison, some of us still in poor housing accommodation or still living mm. on the street. Lots of different people. And we, we were given this opportunity to become our own thing. So in 2016, myself and uh, well, my work colleague, Rachel, we registered as a community interest company to, to provide this sport to the system, but also to provide other opportunities for people who may or not have been given these opportunities before. We were successful in becoming a community interest company. In 2016, we won a couple of local contracts. We also now work on national organisations on a national level. I currently have um, eight full-time employees now. Of all people who've experienced these social disadvantages themselves, we've got 32 volunteers who all have that lived experience and living experience as well. And we've supported 40 people into full-time employment, 23 into part-time employment and 17 into full-time education. People who maybe have never been given them choices before. Darren, I am, I just resonated with you then. I, I'm just recovered from a brain injury. So I'm still in that level. And it really has only recently my emotional part of that brain which has been stopped is coming a bit more I'm crying a bit more a little bit more not much I never really cried much anyway but (laughs) it's like but you know suddenly you do you know I was crying about someone um it was lockdown he was people who weren't able to have cancer treatment and I was suddenly like floods of tears and I'm like oh my goodness so it's just a different part of your brain that I guess it's supposed to be you know like you you uh, suffered with you know with the drugs and everything like that yeah. I guess my brain is still like little little parts of it which is suddenly trying to come back bits of it all coming back and it just takes time that, uh, as well doesn't it it, it, it does. takes time it does. yeah and especially you know you you yourself dealing with a brain injury that that mm. certainly takes time how do you yeah. feel about them little emotions coming back I've only just started dreaming again as well mm. Which wow. is only since, yeah, because I was hospitalised for such a long time. But yeah, the dreaming's coming back. And I can almost remember some of my dreams now, the day after as well. I feel, yeah, it just what makes me think it's a bit more like, oh, a bit more normal again. I feel like these little bits, parts of my brain, which are coming back to life. You're recovering. Yeah, it takes a long time. Like mine's, yes, six years since this all happened. So um, it's taken me a long, long time to get, and I'm, you know, hopefully I'll get back to my new life. It it really really resonated in in what you've said today. Really inspiring, definitely, for anyone who's been um, listening to it. You're so honest and open about it all, which is great. I think that's what, you you know, you've got to be. I always say that sort of, that, that way of life was a very big lie of my life. Criminality, getting caught up in all that that wasn't really me as a person i'm sort of finding me as a person now and doing mm. what i'm doing now i think i all had all that in me beforehand i just didn't know how to find it beforehand mm. and i think i've been helped to find it now 
It was really lovely to hear your story. Definitely, Darren. Well, thanks for having us, having us on, guys. Thank you so really. much. Really appreciate it. Cheers, guys. It. Have a wonderful afternoon. Uh, and you. Thank Take you. care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Feel free to get in touch with the team by emailing thevippod at gmail.com.